you could have enough of one thing that would last for the rest of your life, what would it be? Given the hint I've already told you about, you know the answer I'm asking for you to give. I've already asked a few people this morning, and every time I ask this question, if you could have enough of one thing in your life that would last to the rest of your life, what would it be? Everybody has said everything but money. And I wanted them to say money. They've said, oh, I would have more time. Isn't that an interesting answer? Used to be people would readily say to this question about if you could have one more thing for the rest of your life, it'd be enough and it would last you for the rest of your life, what would it be? Money would be the first response, one of the first ones. Nowadays, millennials who are born in the early 80s to the early 2000s uh, value time because there's not much of it. It's interesting how culture changes. In fact, lots of millennials are taking lower paying jobs so that they can be home at 5 p.m in order to stay home with their kids and raise a family. But I bet that among us, a whole bunch of us, might have said money. If there's one thing you could have more of, if there's one thing that you could have more of for the rest of your life, it'd probably be money. Some of you might have said something like sleep. I know there are a few of you all out there. That was one of the thoughts that I had to answer that question. Uh, Sleep. I know that there are some of you all out there, you know, 17 kids, two full-time jobs, a farm on the side, and, you know, you sew your own clothes and churn your own butter. (laughs) So you want sleep. I mean, I get that. I'm right there with you. But if there's one thing that came to my mind more than anything that I felt like I I never have enough of, it's money. And I bet that for a whole bunch of us, that's one of the first things we thought of. We just never have enough, just never have enough money. (laughs) As a kid, I remember, uh, I just... Just about the end of every month, like clockwork, uh, my mom would sit at the dinner table and just into the late evening around a big pile of papers. I didn't know what they were at the time. But she would just sit there late into the evening and cry for, for a night at the end of every month. And I, and I had no idea why. <laughs> now I know why. A lot of us feel like we just never have enough in the way of financial resources. Uh, there was a man who needed a loan, so he went to the bank. went to the bank and he asked the loan officer, you know, if he could have a loan. And the loan officer came back and said, based on your credit history, it seems the only kind of loan that we could give you is an auto loan. And the man said, oh, you mean money to buy a car? <laughs> and the loan officer said, no, I mean money you lend yourself, an auto loan. He felt like he just never had enough money. You know, I know a lot of truly wealthy people always talk about how money is this sort of, you know, burden, like having a lot of money is a a burden to bear, and it's just sort of this tyranny of a a world that's hard to deal with, and and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of how I I hear it. And and I hear them talking about that, and I say, try me. (laughs) I am willing to be tested with that burden. I don't know anybody who wouldn't turn down more in the way of financial resources. Now, money is one of those things, money is one of those subjects in churches that we are sort of uncomfortable talking about. It's sort of something we don't like to, you know, have a lot of discussion about. It's sort of this hands-off thing, uh, you know, talking about money. And and frankly, while we at FCC here don't talk a lot about money, uh, fairly blessed with people who are generous, frankly, 
Um, it, it is nonetheless important for us to talk about because Jesus does and the Bible does. Uh, some estimates are that about one-sixth of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one-sixth of the Gospels touch on this issue of financial stewardship. Some estimates are that one-third of Jesus' parables talk about money and financial stewardship. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The problem is not when we talk about money too much. The problem is when we don't talk about money at all. That's when money can easily become a real problem in our hearts and in our lives. So what I'm about to say is probably considered kind of uncouth, kind of uncouth to talk about in Christian circles. You know, it's kind of uncool to admit this out loud uh, because we like to think that things in the world work differently than this. Uh, But this is a truth about how the world works. And so we're just going to say it up front. And it's a truth about how many of us work, whether or not we admit that it's true. This is it. Here it is. Money is power. Money is power. Money is a form, a type of power. It's limited in what it can do, for sure. But, but let's just say up front, money is a resource that has power. The more money you have, the more power you have to control your world and the world around you. It's just a fact of how the world works. With enough money, you can make sure your kitchen looks and feels and functions like a kitchen that you see on TV, maybe the Food Network or HGTV, or that you saw in Southern Living, Better Homes and Gardens, you know, all those kinds of you know, things that make us feel like we have power over our environment. You can have a huge stainless steel fridge full of all of the kinds of foods you'd like, a huge walk-in pantry. If you have enough money, you can ensure that if 25 people come over, you're ready. You got your Oreos, you're ready. <laughs> Oreos and coffee, that's all you really need, and I'm ready to come over to your house. But honestly, money is power. I mean, if you have enough money, you can buy luxurious 1,200 thread cotton, and some of you know who I'm talk- what I'm talking about, 1,200 thread cotton Egyptian sheets for your king, mm, king-sized memory foam mattress that you bought from that fancy hotel because, you know, they sell them now. And you got that hotel free because you used a bunch of points because you pay your credit card every month off. You know, that, I mean, that's power. You can ensure that you have nice bedding. With enough money, you can drive a luxury vehicle that looks great, that works well, that is nice, smooth drive, that's quiet, that has cameras on the back, where the seats that are leather are both air-conditioned and heated. Same seat, crazy. You can live in that world with enough money. Money is actually a form of power. And when you've got enough money to buy nice things, you can eat well, You can drive comfortably, you can sleep soundly. Which means the world around you, the world around you feels like a less threatening place. Now here's the clicker for us, of course. (laughs) Because most of us are sitting here thinking, yeah, well, my kitchen isn't on HGTV and my vehicle isn't fancy, so you're not really talking about me yet. And I know that you may not feel 
You are rich. And, and believe me, I'm well aware that Christians do not like to admit to being rich. It's sort of a non-Christian thing to do. But here's the clicker. Here's the truth of the matter. Statistically, without question, if you live in this place and sit in these seats, you are most likely rich. You're most likely rich whether you admit it or not. You're most likely rich if you admit it or not. If you make $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners all over the entire world. Which means that your monthly salary at $33,000 per year could pay the salaries of over 200 medical doctors in Malawi. That's power. And you, so, so you may want to rethink the angst we're all told that we should feel at the top one percenters, at the rich top one percenters, because most likely that's the vast majority of us actually sitting here in this room. So, so here's the thing. If money is power, most of us have far more power than we think. Most of us have far more power than we think. So the real issue is, the real issue is, Christian, non-Christian, the real issue is we must learn to do what we should with that power. We must learn to do, learn what to do with the power that comes with having money. And for some of us, we need to rethink this issue entirely. We need to relearn, we need to start from ground level and learn what to do with the power that comes with having money. In Luke 19, we meet a man that we just read about earlier who knows that money is power. He knows that money is power, but sadly he didn't know what to do with that power. It's why he defrauded uh, his own people for many years. And it's also why in this story he's looking to meet Jesus. So let's pick up the story here in Luke 19. Luke 19, 1 through 10. Verse 1 says this. He entered Jericho. He is Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Luke mentions here the, the, the location Jericho because it's close to Jerusalem and Jesus is moving toward the cross. He's on a mission. There's a sense of movement here in Luke's gospel. And so Jesus is on the move. Verse 2, and behold, it's sort of an abrupt stop there. Luke is a master t- storyteller. We'll see cool things like this throughout. He says, behold, there's a, sort of this abrupt stop to this movement of Jesus on the cross. Behold, take notice, don't miss this, he says. There was a man named Zacchaeus. Here are the details we need for the story. Three of them right here. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, he's telling us three things here that we need for this story. Number one, that Zacchaeus was Jewish. It doesn't say that, but because it's a Jewish name and because of the nature of his job, we know he was Jewish. So number one, he was Jewish. Number two, he was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And number three, he was rich. These three things mean, Luke is telling us, at the onset, before the action of the story gets going here, Luke is being careful to tell us this was a universally despised man. Zacchaeus was a universally despised man by all around him. Because a tax collector, a tax collector was a Jew working for the Romans. 
which means he was someone who was supposed to be one of the good guys who was working for the bad guys. And he was universally despised and perceived as this traitor uh, because not only did he tax us, the good guys, to get money for the Romans, the bad guys, but he earned his wealth by overtaxing us and keeping the extra. And not only did he do that, he'd been doing it long enough and well enough slash badly enough that he has people under him doing the dirty work for him. So he sits at home being wealthy and rich while the rest of us sit here sending our money off to people that are in, in, in control of us. I know a whole bunch of you are sitting there going, not much has changed. <laughs> so this guy Zacchaeus, Luke tells us at the beginning, was understandably and universally despised by the Jews. And so that's some important background before we get moving here. Here's where the story picks up. Verse 3. Here's what happens. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. Notice how that's phrased there. He wasn't just looking for Jesus. He wasn't just looking around like this. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. Not only was Jesus on a mission, but, but Zacchaeus himself was on a mission here, trying to find out who Jesus was. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, it says, he could not. Because, well, duh, because Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. <laughs> if any of you grew up in church, you probably knew 10, 15 minutes ago I was going to have to put that in somewhere. He could not because he was small in stature, it says. You ever been that short kid in the back row of a parade? I remember this a couple times as a kid. Short kid, back row of a parade, couldn't see so when people notice that there's somebody behind who is short and can't help it, who can't see, what do they typically do if they're a normal, nice human being? Oh, come on ahead. Let me usher you forward. I can still see over you. We're good. Or, or, or maybe, you know, if it's a kid, the dad puts the kid on the shoulders so, so the kid can see, but not for a traitor like Zacchaeus. That's not how this works here people. That's not how this works. So Luke is implying here that the crowd is sort of keeping him from seeing, not just that he was short. So he was short in stature and he couldn't see. So here's what he did. Verse four, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. He ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree. Now you have to know a couple things. This is a patriarchal culture. This is a patriarchal culture where uh, dignified men don't exactly run in public. It's just not a thing that they did. In fact, there were you know, proverbial statements about dignified men you know, having a slow and wise-looking gait. That's just, that's just how you carried yourself in that culture. Uh, in fact, if you were to run, you, you probably would have had to grab up quite a bit of clothing and, uh, and, and held them up while you ran, which means you would have had to show some leg. Again, no leg in that culture. The big no-no for a number of reasons. Keep your legs to yourself. So verse 4, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, it says, to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Passing that way is more of this movement language. Luke is taking us to the cross in the wider context here. But he climbed up into a sycamore tree. This is what a sycamore tree looked like. You can see that it's uh, got thick branches 
And it's a pretty low tree, so this would have been easy to climb onto here, the sycamore tree. Now, if dignified men in that culture didn't exactly run, uh, especially if you wanted to keep up this idea of you being wise and wealthy, uh, they certainly didn't climb trees. I mean, that's the kind of thing that kids did. And they certainly didn't climb trees. Same kind of reasons as, let's keep your... Okay, so uh, it says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, so he ran on ahead, climbed into a sycamore tree, and then verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus. He already knew his name somehow, notice that. Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down. Don't delay. This is urgent. For I must stay at your house today. Now notice what's going on here. Jesus, who was well known and well respected by this time, has invited himself into the home of someone who was universally despised. This isn't just Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to come over for dinner. This is Jesus saying, Zacchaeus, invite me into your life. This isn't just hyperbole preacher talk here. It's actually in the text here. Because this exchange between Zacchaeus and, and Jesus is wrapped in hospitality language. And in a hospitality-heavy culture like this one, to stay at someone's house was a big deal. So Jesus says, I must stay. I must remain at your house today. That's hospitality language for pull out the sofa bed. I'm coming over for the evening. I may be staying overnight. We also know this from Zacchaeus' response. Keep reading in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The word here for received has the connotation of welcoming someone into one's home. It's a hospitality word for welcoming someone into one's home. Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house is like saying, I want to be your friend. That's what's going on in this exchange. It's like Jesus is saying, I I know you're despised. I know nobody likes you. I know where you come from. We all know Zacchaeus. But I want to have a relationship with you. (laughs) So you can imagine Zacchaeus' response. All this crowd of people there to see Jesus, well-respected, miracle worker, preaching about the kingdom. They all knew who he was. And there was this despised by everyone chief tax collector trader who Jesus approaches. And you can imagine his response. You want to you be with me? Zacchaeus is just floored that Jesus would want to know him. And so here's what he does. I'm sorry, let's talk about the crowd first. Verse 7. They see this scene. They see Zacchaeus being excited about uh, receiving Jesus into his home. And this is what the crowd says, verse 7. When they saw it, when they saw this exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus, they all grumbled. They began to mutter, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. 
This is the same thing that's been going on all throughout uh, Luke, all throughout Jesus' ministry. He, he eats, he dines, he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Luke has talked about this in chapters 5, 7, 13, 14, and 15 before this point. But notice the difference between, remember Zacchaeus is on a mission to see who Jesus was. Look at the difference between what Zacchaeus saw here and what the crowd saw. Verse 7 says, When they saw it, they grumbled. The crowd saw here a scandal. To stay in the home of a tax collector was the equivalent of saying, uh, I'm I'm a friend with this sinner and I share in it. So I'm I'm complicit. That was what they were assuming here. The problem is that they didn't realize that they were no better than Zacchaeus. They thought they were righteous. But Zacchaeus, knowing himself to be unrighteous, saw that Jesus wanted a relationship with him and he could hardly believe it. So when Jesus says, I must stay at your house today, Zacchaeus goes, my house? Me? Universally despised him? Do you know what I've done? And you want to be my friend. This is how he responds. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, this is a declaration and a promise, Behold, Lord, Notice he calls him Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In saying this, Zacchaeus went beyond what the law required in circumstances of repayment for stealing or for cheating someone. He went far beyond what the law required. And so Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. He declared it not just to Zacchaeus, but to those around who are watching and grumbling. This is, a son of a- this is what a son of Abraham looks like here, people. That's what Jesus is saying here. So when Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, he's not saying, I know, I know you're saved by giving away your money. He doesn't say, I know you've been saved by giving away your money. He's saying, I know you're saved because you are giving away your money. As a demonstration of what's just happened. This is key right here. Zacchaeus was giving away his money not to earn trust in God, but to demonstrate his trust in God. That's the key. Verse 10. We'll finish up and then make some observations about the text here. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Remember at the beginning there, verse 3, where it says, uh, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But in the end, who is seeking whom here? (laughs) Zacchaeus' faith Zacchaeus' faith found its object in Jesus. Not only was he seeking Jesus, but turns out the whole time that Jesus was also seeking him. Now, what does this story of Zacchaeus say about becoming a generous follower of Jesus in a way that has to do with us? What does the story of Zacchaeus have to say to us. Let's reflect a bit on just on this scene of what just happened. Here's this wealthy tax collector 
who has lots of worldly power. He can buy what he wants. He's got everything he could ever need. He eats well. He drives comfortably. He sleeps soundly. His kitchen was probably featured on HGTV. He sleeps on a memory foam, king-sized, drives an Escalade, whatever. But even with all that, he is lost because he was living according to the world's rules. And he had gained his power by defrauding others. He is lonely because no one wants to be his friend, universally despised by all those around him. And his stuff, he knows, because he's experienced, doesn't do jack to make him feel better. So, so when Jesus comes along and offers him friendship, relationship, freedom from being enslaved to worldly power, what does Zacchaeus do? He gives away half of his possessions to the poor, and he restores four times as much to those he has defrauded. He went beyond even what the Old Testament law required in circumstances of paying back for cheating or stealing. Why on earth does he go that far? Why does Zacchaeus go that far? He could have just repented and said, Sorry, Jesus, I know I've been a bad dude. I'll, I'll reform, I'll do better, I'll be fair, I'll start being generous. But he didn't, he didn't simply do that. He went a little crazy. <laughs> Here's why. If money is power, then when we give away money, we are giving away, releasing control of our power which is a prerequisite for experiencing trust in God. If money is power, then when we give away our money, we are giving away power. Which is a prerequisite for experiencing trust in God and His kingdom. You see, Zacchaeus knew how much of his money he would have to give away in order to give up his control. And it was a lot of money. He knew how much of his money he would have to give away in order to know what it was like to have to experience trust in God. Now listen, I, I don't think... Christians, uh, quote, don't give. Statistically, uh, about 2.5% of conservative, evangelical, regular attenders in America uh, give 10% or more. Statistically, it's about 2.5% of conservative, evangelical Christians in America uh, actually tithe. Uh, but, but I don't think Christians don't give because they don't want to. Uh, statistically as well, somewhere around 40% of regular conservative Christians in America who attend church, 40% give nothing to the local congregation, while 60% give the rest. 
I don't really think, however, that Christians don't give because they don't want to. Anybody who loves and follows Jesus, has read the Bible, wants to be more like Zacchaeus, and wants to be generous. I don't think Christians don't give because they don't want to. I think Christians don't give because they are scared to give up worldly control and personal security. For some of us, we don't give because we are living in fear of loss of control, which means we're still sold on our need to control our world with our things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying be foolish. There's plenty in Scripture that talks about things like uh, the ant who is wise to stockpile food for the dry season. But the question remains, how much do I give away? How much do I give away? Well, you may not have to give away half of your possessions to the poor and restore to others fourfold to release your worldly control. But you might. I don't know. So here's the question. Here's the question for all of us in our giving, regardless of how much we make. How much do I have to give away in order to, and here's the key that we saw there at the end of the Zacchaeus story, how much do I have to give away in order to demonstrate my trust in God such that Jesus might say to me, today salvation has come to this house. For some, that may literally be nothing because you're already there. You are, you are not the one percenter we talked about earlier who makes 33000 a year or more. And you may not have money to do anything other than trust in God. You may already be there, which is fine. Okay, start with nothing. That's where everybody starts. But don't stay there. Make a practice of giving away something and increase as you are able. But don't get used to your personal income rising while you're financially demonstrating your trust in God stays idle. For some, the answer to this question may be literally tens of thousands of dollars more per year in order to demonstrate the trust that you have in God's control over your life and the world. I don't know. You know. God knows. But it's the same issue whether you've got lots of money or you don't have lots of money. Give away what you need in order to stay in a state of trust in God. Give away what you need in order to stay in a state of trust in God. So what do we do with the power that comes with having money? We give it away. We give it away as a practice, as a practice of faith in God's sovereign control. When you give your money away, you are actually practicing trusting God. 
When you give your money to this church's local budget, this local church's budget, (laughs) you are shopping local in a way that literally supports kingdom work within this very community. You're also shopping global in a way that supports tons of kingdom work abroad. Notice what happens when you give your money away. You release that control and you give that power away in a way which we hope and pray and are accountable for using in a way that releases the power of God into the world. That's what you're doing when you give to the local church. You're releasing that power and you're saying, this body of of overseers we call elders and deacons below them are, are, are held responsible to ensure that this money I'm giving is used in a way that unleashes kingdom power. And you, when you, when you let that go, you say, I submit in faith and trust that God's going to use that that way. I believe a Christian's number one financial goal, a Christian's number one financial goal is not merely to have enough for retirement or to leave enough for the kids. Well, that's fine. But a Christian's number one Those might be two, three, four, whatever. Number one financial goal is to contribute to the power of the kingdom of God to change lives. So what do you do with the power that comes from having money? What do you do with the power that comes from having a money? You give it away. Because being generous unleashes kingdom power. Not just in the lives of others around you, but in your own life. Why am I not growing? Why am I not having a sense that God's using me? Perhaps it's because you still live in a way that's tied to this world. Friends, being generous with money is unleashing kingdom power in your life and the lives of those around you. When God gave away His power in the person of Jesus on the cross. He unleashed kingdom power. Please, friends, we must learn to use our financial resources in a way that does the same thing. In a way that looks like the way that God gave of Himself for us. Because all generosity flows from an understanding of the grace of God. And if you want to test whether or not you believe it, Get out your checkbook. Look at your financial statement. Let's pray. Lord God, you've given us everything that we call our own. And so we acknowledge afresh, we acknowledge anew this morning, Lord, that These resources were never just ours. And regardless of how we feel about how we've earned them, they were given to us by you on loan for the sake of your glory being made known, for the sake of unleashing your kingdom in the lives of people who need to be invited to have relationship with you. 
Lord, we ask that you'd give us the strength and the courage to release control as a demonstration of our faith in you. Use that process in our lives, Lord, to teach us and to stretch us and to help us experience what you gave up for us. Lord, we love you because you've given us grace that we didn't deserve. You've blessed us beyond what we could possibly earn. Uh, You've given to us a salvation that overcame our rebellion against you. You provided for us a sacrificial lamb when we should have been the lamb who was sacrificed. So, Father, make of us men and women whose lives demonstrate the grace you've given to us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.